and welcome to Linux Action News, our weekly take on Linux and the open source world. This is episode 77, recorded on October 28th, 2018. I'm Chris. And I'm Joe. Hello, Joe. It is great to be connected with you on episode 77 of the show. We have major stories to get into, and let's start with one that I am elated to announce. Linus is back in charge of the kernel. Yeah, Greg KH has posted the 4.19 kernel and said, right, with that then, back to you, Linus. <laughs> yeah, all right, all done. Uh, actually, he had a really good post. I mean, these things are typically pretty brief when you're doing a release. Like, here's the new stuff, and uh, have at it. But this time, he he took a moment when he knew everybody would be watching, and he wrote out a great post. And he talked a little bit about the past few months. He says, this is a quote from his mailing list, post, uh, the last few months have been a tough one for our community, as it's our community that is fighting from within itself, with prodding from others outside of it. Don't fall into the cycle of arguing about those others. That is the trap that countless communities have fallen into over the centuries. We share the same goal. Let us never lose sight of that. So here is my plea to everyone out there. Let us take a day off or two. Rest, relax with friends by sharing a meal, recharge, and then get back to work to help continue to create the system that the world has never seen the likes of together. And then towards the end, he says, and with that, Linus, I'm handing the kernel tree back to you. You can have the joy of dealing with the merge window. Did you see the interview that Swapnil did with the two of them? No, I didn't see that. Uh, it was really interesting, actually. It was at the Open Source Summit Europe in Edinburgh this week. And it was a really good chat that he had with them. And what really came across to me was that they just care about the technicalities of it. They were really getting into the details of everything. And they kind of touched on the politics side of things. But it just seems to me that they don't care, Linus and Greg, about that stuff. You know, they, they do obviously want things to run smoothly. And, you know, we know that Linus has got this email filter now that he's talked about. But... He really wants to just concentrate on making the best bit of software possible. And that seems to be all he's ever really cared about. Hmm, you know, I might check that out. I I would agree that when I had the opportunity to chat with Greg or when I've just read the mailing list, their focus really is the technical details of how to build a kernel. And that may be why they kind of took a while to get around to a code of conduct is that's not what their focus was. Either way, it's good to see Linus back in action and... Um, all eyes are on Linus now. His first correction of a patch has already made news since he's been back in the captain's chair. It's already across all the news sites about quoting Linus about how he responded to a patch request and how it compares to previous responses. And the whole analysis has already begun, and it's been one day. Yeah, and if you actually look at what he wrote in that email, it was very calm, wasn't it? It was very much about technical details and no kind of ad hominems or any of that. He's delivered on his promise, at least so far. It's not been very long, but fingers crossed. It was still classic Linus, though. <laughs> like, there's a dig in there about how all developers want their uh, kernel modules to be on by default at boot, and there's a couple of moments in there. It's not mean, but it's still, he's very clear about why this isn't okay and what the technical mistake was. I also read an interview that he did at that summit, um, and he was asked about the eBPF stuff in the kernel, and he was kind of broadly positive about that. This eBPF stuff is going to represent a massive change in the way developers can interact with the kernel and build tools. BPF probably sounds familiar, the Berkeley packet filter. It's something that PFSense has built, and the BSDs have it. It's great. It's amazing. 
and it's helped them create a really powerful packet filter. That wasn't good enough, though, for the Linux camp. They're implementing eBPF, extended BPF, which is building on top of a virtual machine that accepts bytecode inside the kernel, which can be used to create incredible tools. If you use something like TCP dump, you're already using eBPF, and you just didn't know it. We did an expansive coverage of eBPF and the tools that it can create, how you can use it today, and even hardware that's being built around this new technology. It's episode 388. You go to techsnap.systems slash 388. And yeah, I think the kernel developers are excited about it because it's been around for about four years in the core kernel, but we're just now starting to see really cool tools being built around it, and so it's getting a lot of attention, and the kernel developers are starting to talk about it more and more. And that's what drew our attention to it. That's why we made that TechSnap episode. It's really awesome. Yeah, and don't tell him, listeners, but I got paid to listen to that twice, and I would have done it for free. <laughs> you know what, Joe? It was worth it. You're a good editor. <laughs> uh, yeah, so techsnap.system slash 388 if you want to see that. And that's the kind of stuff, though, going back to your point about them being excited about the technical details of the kernel. That's the kind of stuff that shows it. Is there, They really enjoy that stuff, and it's pretty awesome to see that passion after all of these years and it feels good to have Linus back and so far it seems like it was a productive absence yeah and one of the best things that I took from these interviews was them treating this code of conduct as a last resort and that they're moving forward they've got that in place and it's not going to be something that's used all the time it's just there as a kind of safety net for if the other procedures and protocols fall down and if there are serious problems then they'll go back to that but my fears have been completely allayed by the interviews that I've seen and read over the last week. Well your fears about Google may be allayed soon too at least if Pine64 is successful. Yeah Pine64 who are well known for their various single board computers that look a little bit like Raspberry Pis but are generally more powerful I think and of course the Pine book which I have paid for and I'm waiting to be dispatched anytime soon so Hopefully, I'll have an update on that soon. And they are planning to make a phone now and a tablet, by the looks of things, both of which will be based on Plasma Mobile. Hey, 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 I love hearing that. This is also another story out of the Open Source Summit, Europe edition. And uh, tip of the hat to It's Foss for going out there and getting this story directly from Jonathan Riddle, uh, the main man behind uh, KDE Neon. And it appears that It's Foss also contacted the Pine64 team and got confirmation from them as well that they're working on these plans. So we have confirmation from Pine64 and Jonathan Riddle. Something's in the works here. Yeah, stress in the works. This is not available yet. It's not even pre-order time. But <laughs> no. it's kind of build the hype time. And I'm I'm on board with that hype, man. It's This sounds amazing. There was a line in there. It's Fast asked why they don't have the Librem 5 on display at their uh, booth. And uh, Jonathan said that the Librem has been more focused on GNOME than KDE. And so they felt like going with Pine, it sounds like, if you read between the lines, was uh, a better direction to go than plan on the Librem 5. It's kind of what I grokked from that. Well, that's one way to look at it. Another way is why not both? Mm. Um, And, you know, that's kind of how the Librem 5 is. Why not both on that? you have to concentrate on one more than the other to some extent. And it looks like Purism are going to be focusing almost completely on GNOME, but they're going to have this Plasma mobile option. And so it kind of makes sense that if various hardware makers are looking to build a phone that's free software, 
why not work with everyone? Having the Pine folks involved has really piqued my interest in a way that maybe another hardware vendor would not have. And you could end up seeing a bit of a Pine platform develop here because you'll have the phone, a tablet. Of course, you'll have the Pine book, or you could just get yourself the Pine A64 board and use that. And those are, you know, those are around 15, 20 US greenbacks. I mean, you have a really low cost platform where Plasma is going to be a first class citizen. I don't know. Maybe my uh, Plasma fanboy is shining a little too brightly here, but I think this is a very exciting development. And I don't expect it to make billions, but I do expect it to provide lots of fun entertainment for myself. And that, that makes me happy. One word of warning, though, is take their prices with something of a pinch of salt, because the, the Pine book is supposed to be $99, right? It's this amazingly cheap laptop. Okay, it's ARM-based. It's not super powerful. It's only got like a couple of gigs of RAM or whatever. but it's $99. Well, mm, asterisk. By the time you've paid for shipping to the UK, I paid $138.99, including shipping, and that doesn't include import taxes. So I'm expecting it to be, I don't know, somewhere around, I don't know, 175 200-ish by the time I get it, which is still cheap, but just beware of that. They, they tend to um, not put the shipping costs up front, which is a little bit disingenuous. But I still want this to happen, and I still want to get my Pine book, which I ordered quite a while ago, to be honest. But I understand they're a small company. They need to get the order together and everything. But uh, I don't think we'll be seeing this before the Librem 5, put it that way. But I'm happy to be surprised on that one. Well, maybe you should save your crypto for HTC's blockchain phone. Although... Not quite what was originally promised. Yeah, talk about hype. This is a phone that you can pre-order, but only using either Bitcoin or Ether. <laughs> I love it. Yeah, which is a bit strange, really, because then they never know exactly how much money they're going to get for it, because it's quite expensive, isn't it? Well, I don't know, Joe. It depends on how much of a Bitcoin baller you are, because right now, depending on the price of Bitcoin, it's selling for 0.15 Bitcoin. Which actually is a ton of money. That's about nearly a thousand US dollars. <laughs> yeah, which most phones are about that these days, to be fair. Like any sort of iPhone or high end Samsung or Pixel or whatever. And this is, uh, you know, it's no slouch, is it? Six gigs of RAM, 128 gigs of storage, Snapdragon 845. This is pretty much flagship territory, isn't it? So it's that's about the right price, I would say. Well, certainly market price, maybe uh, the whole market's a bit inflated at the moment. But yeah, it's it's expensive, but it could be a lot cheaper in a couple of days, couldn't it, with the way Bitcoin goes? Yeah, I suppose. Maybe they'll just adjust the price upwards, though. Um, so what makes it a quote-unquote blockchain phone? I mean, they had all these ideas about using it for Bitcoin trading and whatnot and having a secure crypto wallet. Uh, but here's what they ended up with. And I suppose in a sense, this isn't bad, but it's not really necessarily dependent on a phone. It's it's implemented at the app level. HTC made a social key recovery mechanism. You know, in case you lose your phone, it gets stolen, etc. And you're able to keep the recovery details with a few trustworthy friends. You can spread it out amongst them. And then they have to download an app to manage your key. Hey, that's just great right there, asking people to install a random HTC app for you. (laughs) And then HTC then uses a secret sharing algorithm, direct quote, to send the info to your friends, which then you can piece together if needed. Because it's stored out in a distributed personal blockchain, you see, so it's a blockchain phone. And the phone's also being opened up uh, to third-party developers if they want to make an app based on the similar back-end technology. So that's why it's a blockchain phone. 
We didn't mention the name of it. It's called The Exodus. It's almost like the headlines write themselves, isn't it, when this doesn't do very well. Yeah, you're right about this. And then, uh, of course, expect the uh, followed headline, blockchain technologies are failing. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Well, we'll see. We might be surprised, but I doubt it. A very few select Firefox users may have a little surprise in their hamburger menu soon. Yeah, it might be recommending that you sign up for Proton VPN. So if you're out and about at a coffee shop or whatever using unsecure Wi-Fi and you could use a VPN, then a randomly selected very small number of Firefox users will get this pop-up, this suggestion saying, hey, sign up for Proton VPN for $10 a month and then you'll be all secure and everything. And uh, oh yeah, Mozilla's going to get a bit of a kickback from it. But yeah, that's fair enough, right? Advertising in your browser. Okay, so uh, does this bother you, Joe? Because it seems like this might bother you a little bit. I mean, they gotta make they got to make a living making that browser, right? Well, I really don't know how to feel about this because on the one hand, it feels a bit dirty of them to, to put adverts in their browser, but then they have to keep going. And the Google money is going to dry up. We've been talking about this for ages. The main revenue stream for Mozilla is the Google search money. And... That's a bit weird and has been for a long time because Firefox is this direct competitor to Chrome. And so Google could pull the plug at any point, potentially. Now, you do have to also consider that they did get quite a lot of money out of Yahoo, over a billion (laughs) dollars. You do love to bring that up. Well, you know, a billion dollars is not an insignificant figure, is it? So, (laughs) um, But Oath, the company who Yahoo now is, basically, are looking to challenge that and not pay up. So you can kind of see why they want to diversify their revenue streams, for want of a better phrase. So here's their pitch, though, Joe. They say, we've examined each vendor's privacy and data retention policies to ensure they log as little user data as possible. And we also considered numerous other factors, including local privacy laws, company track record, their transparency, and quality of support. As a result of this evaluation, Mozilla has selected Proton VPN for this experiment. What they're telling you is, Look, end user, we know picking a VPN is hard, so we went through all of the options, whittled it down to Proton VPN, and hey, they're based out of Switzerland, isn't that swell? So we think this is the one you should use, and we're going to just go ahead and make life easier for you and just put a button in your hamburger menu where you can sign up right here now. And to be fair, Proton Mail is what they're mostly known for. I've never heard anything but good things yeah. from the audience and people in the community. Everyone has always said that's great. It does seem like they picked a good one. Well, I hope so, yeah. I think overall, this is a valuable test. First of all, it's like they stress several times, a very small percentage of the Firefox user base. But also, maybe this is the kind of thing that Mozilla should be doing. They have a bit of trust here with end users. I mean, that's why people are using their web browser. And this issue of who's a safe VPN provider who's not going to just hand over all of my records to some uh, IP enforcement cop when they come knocking or whatever the case may be. People have these issues, these questions. And you can trust Mozilla to a degree here, I think. I I believe them when they say they went through and vetted a bunch of different ones. I'm sure uh, the one that was willing to work with them and give them a cut also played a factor here. <laughs> but I tr- I believe them. And that may be a valuable service they're providing to end users now. And, you know, if they get two bucks out of ten bucks a month, I kind of like that, too, because I want Mozilla to keep on going. And I don't want them to be hooked to the Google sauce. My understanding is it's significantly more than $2, but either way, they're still making a fair bit of revenue here. And you're right. I'd much rather trust 
an organization like Mozilla than any other similarly sized or bigger tech giant mm. because they seem to have kind of decent founding principles. They, they're not all about maximizing profits. Yeah, they're all about making enough revenue to keep going and self-sustain and everything, but they're not this big evil corporation, are they? Yeah, I think there's a degree of that. And also, I just fundamentally trust their motivations for making a web browser, and they line up with my intentions. So at the end of the day, that's why I kind of have the most trust for Mozilla, even regardless of their size. Yeah. Well, speaking of Yahoo's billion, Red Hat became a billion-dollar company back in 2012. And today, IBM is announcing that they are acquiring Red Hat for $34 billion. Wow. <laughs> That's all I can say to that. This is the huge. This is just simply huge news. And uh, Jim Whitehurst, the president and CEO of Red Hat, wrote, Joining forces with IBM will provide us a greater level of scale, resources, and capabilities to accelerate the impact of open source as the basis for the digital transformation and bring Red Hat to an even wider audience. Now, he also says they're going to preserve their unique culture and that IBM is going to operate Red Hat as essentially a arm's reach subcorporation. Do you buy that? Well, that's what you would say, wouldn't you? Yeah, I suppose you would. <laughs> it's certainly going to be the case for a while, but how long that will be, I don't know, really. Um, I mean, my initial reaction to this was, well, at least it's not Microsoft. Hmm. You know, that is interesting. My first thought was, I wonder if there was a bidding race and Microsoft was in the contending. A lot of times when it breaks like this, you, you learn after the fact that several companies were in the bidding process. And you do have to kind of wonder if that was going on here. What, what strikes me about this is this would have been a good purchase for Microsoft because in this press release and how IBM's already talking about it, it's all 100% cloud. This is a direct quote from IBM's chairman. The acquisition of Red Hat is a game changer. It changes everything about the cloud market. This is all about the cloud. It's not about desktop. You know, so this would have been right in their Azure wheelhouse. But as somebody who does keep an eye on the desktop, I, I do wonder what this means long-term for the Fedora project. I'm talking, in, you know, in two years. Or even CentOS. What does this mean long-term for those freebies from Red Hat? Well, I don't think two years is long-term here. I think in two years, we won't see any difference at all. I think maybe five to ten years is when we'll start seeing a potential difference here. But the thing is that it's an open source company, isn't it? It's a fundamentally open source company, Red Hat, that has been acquired here. And if you start making changes to the, the culture of that, then it's not worth buying in the first place, is it? The, what they're buying is an open source culture. And okay, it's a very profitable open source culture. But if they just kick that out and start saying, there's no more free versions, there's no more Fedora, there's no more CentOS, and you know, start cracking down on things like Scientific or whatever. That's just going to be such bad PR for them that why did they bother in the first place? People will right. move away from them to things like SUSE and yeah. Ubuntu. Yeah, and I think, I think CentOS and Scientific and uh, Fedora play an important like in-the-door role. You've, you always heard like Adobe knows that there's a percentage of Photoshop that gets pirated and they're actually okay with that because then they have another stat that shows them a percentage of those users end up just buying the software and it's like a pre-sales tool for a lot of them. Yeah, it might be five or ten years down the road after they've finished being a student or whatever, but yeah, eventually it pays off. I think the other thing you have to ask when a 
big, big announcement like this first hits and you're trying to figure out how to process it, is the new owner going to be a better owner of the old things? And I think the question here is, will IBM be a better owner? Will they be a better steward of Red Hat's technologies? Now, you got to give IBM credit in this space for years now. They have been very pro-Linux. They have probably been responsible for some of the largest enterprise Linux deployments in history. And they did those commercials that were pretty great. People, I'm sure, remember those. So there could have been a worse company here. I mean, I'm not saying it was going to be Oracle, but it could have been a company like Oracle here. <laughs> you know, maybe, maybe not. Maybe Red Hat wouldn't have sold, but. It's funny you say a worse company and mention Oracle. Okay, that's probably the worst it could have been. But I can think of one on a par with Microsoft that seemed very likely to me, Amazon. Oh, I thought you were going to say Google. Yeah, I guess so, right? Because of all that AWS. Well, yeah, and um, the fact that Amazon Linux is based on Red Hat, it kind of makes sense, doesn't it? Yeah, I could, you're right. Ooh, I would love to know if there's a bidding war here because I totally could see Amazon in the mix too. I could see Amazon, Microsoft, and Google, and IBM, of course, all bidding. Absolutely. And I'll tell you, the industry take here is that out of the group, IBM has the best sales team and that that's been an area that Red Hat's been okay in but could have been doing better and that's where IBM could take things to the next level. And so what do you think the feeling inside the Red Hat camp is now that this news is broken? Well, I've heard from a few that it's bad, that the big concern is that they do have a very unique culture and that that culture could be damaged. Uh, end of days could be described as some of the feelings that are being expressed. But I, I, I can't speak for everybody, you know, who really knows. I think most of them are just processing this. I think the corporation is going to have a big old company-wide meeting to have a talk about this because this is happening on a Sunday. I don't think that was the intention. But earlier today, the news started to leak. Reuters and Bloomberg had rumors. It started to spread over Reddit and Twitter. And so they just decided to leap on it before they had a chance to send around the company-wide email. So put yourself in their position for a moment, a Red Hat employee's position. You're browsing your Sunday Twitter, and you see that your company's been bought. Like, what kind of revelation is that? And then the email comes in saying that we've been, we're being acquired. Like, that must, be, that must be one heck of a Sunday. Yeah, you'd think that there'd be procedures in place that your immediate manager or whatever, or there'd be in all hands, you know, you don't want to hear this stuff on Twitter. It must be very alarming for them. They just don't really have much information. You would hope that on Monday when the, the meeting happens and when you know people are actually at work talking to their colleagues and they have some more clarity on this, that things won't feel as bad for them because, you know, like them or not, Red Hat are the poster child for making money with open source. They're pretty much all we have in terms of making serious money. Uh, Joe, allow me to interject for just a second here. What you're referring to as Red Hat is actually now known as IBM. Oh, They're yeah, the leaders yeah. in making money. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it does kind of make me wonder if Canonical is next. If you were going to ask me to make a prediction, I would have said Canonical is going to get bought first. Um, so now, now what? Because that's a massive behemoth for Canonical to try to sell against. Well, we've seen Sousa get bought and now Red Hat. So who else is left? Well, we just won't know, Joe. We'll just have to keep watching the news and report it here. You can get the latest, including the developments of this IBM purchasing Red Hat story. And if anything major breaks between now and Linux Unplugged, we'll cover it there too. But 
In the meantime, just to make sure you're getting it every single week and getting that analysis, go to linuxactionnews.com slash subscribe for all of the ways to get new episodes. And go to linuxactionnews.com slash contact for ways to get in touch. And we'll be back next Monday with our weekly take on the latest Linux and open source news. I am at Chris LAS. I'm at Joe Ressington. Thank you for joining us, and we will see you next week. See you later. Thank you.